everyone, um, my name is Laura McSkimming and I'm a third year studying biochemistry. Today I'll be doing the Bible reading for us. Um, so today we're reading from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1 verses 17 to 25. Um, Corinthians is written by Paul and it's a letter to the Corinthians. Um, and yeah, so please join me if you've got your Bible there, um, read it from your Bible or it's up on the screen for you guys. Um, so so yeah, please join with me and read this passage. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Why is the philosopher of this age? Well, sorry, where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Welcome. It's good to join you for this special Easter event with the Christian Union. Has it ever crossed your mind that God does a pretty lousy job? If he really wanted people to believe in him, surely he could do a much better job at proving himself. I have friends who regularly say to me something along the lines of, if God's real, why doesn't he prove himself to me? I think they've usually got one of two things in mind. Usually they want a demonstration of God's power. If God turned up today, I could recognise him, see him, I'd believe. Or more normally, if God would do some spectacular miracle, pick up one of the, the high-rise towers in the centre of Perth, flip it up in the air, put it back down in its place, all videoed, I'd believe. After all, he's omnipotent, isn't he? Nothing is beyond him. He can do it, but he doesn't. It's up to him to convince me if he wants me to believe. Or they're thinking about some sort of logical, compelling proof that God exists like one of those mathematical theorems. The sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. I can prove it. QED. Now, wouldn't it be great if there was a syllogism like that? So it was all settled. We can know for sure. Yes, God exists. Surely God's clever enough to provide such a proof, but he hasn't. And you'd expect God to do a much better job at promoting himself. If Australia can get Kylie Minogue to promote our distant shores with songs about mateship and wide open spaces, surely God could get some high-profile celebrities to endorse him. Taylor Swift, David Warner, ScoMo. Well, <laughs> ScoMo does, but it seems to have the opposite effect. Or intellectual giants like a Barry Marshall or Tom Gleeson. At least he could hire a good graphic artist and design a more attractive logo. The logo for Christianity for 2,000 years now has been a cross. And I know you can make them look pretty and wear them on chains around your neck, but in its context, a cross was a symbol of execution 
of the worst class of criminals, murderers, traitors, scumbags. It evokes the cruelest of tortures, pain and shame. The modern equivalent, I guess, would be something like an electric chair or a gallows. Imagine you walk down the street and there's a church building and up on its top, for all to see, is a gallows. (laughs) What's that? Well, that's really what a cross was. Christians make much of Easter this coming weekend when we recall Jesus being crucified on one of those despicable, shameful crosses. I guess that seems strange to many in our community. Why the morbid fascination with something so cruel and unattractive? A man gets himself killed, even a martyr's death. Why would I be attracted to that? It's weak, it's foolish. Nothing to see there, just move along. Why does God do such a lousy job? Well, this short passage from a letter written by an early Christian leader, Paul, was written about 55 AD, 20 short years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. Why does God do such a lousy job? Well, before we look at the passage, I just want to tell you one wrong answer, but a popular one. Often people think God doesn't prove himself because religion is a matter of faith not of belief and evidence. Faith is sort of, it's believing without evidence, without any visible means of support. It's a leap in the dark. But that misunderstands what faith is. When Christians talk about faith, they're just using the normal everyday word for trust. You exercise trust all the time in all sorts of people and things, like the chair you're sitting in if you're sitting at the moment. Or when you go to drive your car on the roads, you trust the other drivers to drive on their side and not suddenly head straight for you and kill you. And you have good reasons for doing that. And so do Christians for putting their faith in Jesus. Now let's start with verse 21 of this passage. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Notice, it's a bit convoluted, but it's saying that God made a deliberate decision to not allow people like you and me to find him through our own wisdom, our own intellectual and scientific endeavours. Why? Well, verse 22, he goes on to say, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. God has not and will not pander to the demands of humans. Jews look for miracles, demonstrations of power. Greeks are after wisdom, the clever argument expressed eloquently. Same as today, is no different. But God won't give either. It's not that God has never done any miracles. Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus as well, the most incredible miracle you can imagine. But he won't do them on demand. Paul himself didn't either. Perfectly capable, he did many miracles by the power of God. He was one of the intellectual giants of the first century. But instead of showing that off, he preached Christ crucified with all the vile connotations that had. In his world, crucifixion was something banned from polite conversation. The word itself came with a trigger warning. Mention of the word was enough to cause nausea and distress. But that's what Paul preached everywhere he went. It's not just that God refuses to pander to people's demands. He positively sets out to dismantle human wisdom and cleverness. 
earlier in, in verse 19, he says, it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God speaking. The intelligence of the intelligent I'll frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Where's the university lecturer? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God wants to show human wisdom up as foolish. He wants to subvert our pretension to be clever and wise. How come? Does he feel threatened by the competition? Does he look around UWA and say, these people are getting so clever, I better push them down a bit in case I lose my sense of superiority? Or does God just want us to remain ignorant? No, it's a very different concern. Just after this passage, uh, it says this, God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. The issue is pride and arrogance, a, a universal human failing. In the Bible's account of our world, the first humans were given all the privileges. They were made like God. God gave them the privilege of ruling his world, but that wasn't enough. They wanted to become God, to replace the creator with themselves, to be God. Instead of thankfully living in God's world, embracing our creatureliness, we want to be the centre of the universe. We want to have God as our servant at best, or dismiss him as a nuisance at worst, which is really an expression of pride. You don't believe me? Just reflect. I, I reckon that pride is at the heart of most human evil, whether it's domestic violence or telling lies or rape or war or simply giving somebody the cold shoulder. It's usually pride, isn't it? And it affects all of us. Uh, one of my experiences is that I, if I get into some sort of argument, you know, the discussion where we disagree, uh, after the argument I go home and I rerun it in my mind. And when I rerun it, I work out all the things I should have said to win the argument. I have never lost a rerun in my life. I win every one. Now, empirically, that's impossible. Uh, I'll, I'll be as wrong as, as often as I'm right, but I'm proud. I want to be right. I pretend I am. And there is something arrogant about saying to God, God, I'll believe in you if you prove yourself to me. I'll set the criteria. I'll assess your performance. See if you come up to scratch. If God pandered to our demands, what sort of relationship would that create between me and God? One where I call the shots. When I say jump, God has to jump. When our core problem is pride, that just escalates the problem. It, it doesn't solve it. Well, if God isn't pandering to our demands, what is he up to? Well, again, verse 21 gives us a really helpful clue. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. See, he changes from know to save. God's goal is not getting people to believe in him, it's not that God was feeling a bit underappreciated. He hadn't had enough likes on Facebook recently. God is not trying to save himself from obscurity, as if he needs us to do him a favour by believing in him. It's the opposite. God is doing us a huge favour, saving us, rescuing us. That's the clue to understanding why the cross is the symbol of Christianity, why Easter is so significant. It's in understanding what God is up to. 
And so in verse 22, 23, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's what Paul promotes, proclaims far and wide. That's what he's on about all the time, Christ crucified. That's what saves people. That's what restores our relationship with God and gives it the right shape. But let's unpack this Christ crucified a little bit. Christ, another word is Messiah, same word. Messiah might be more familiar to you. It's a term we use in politics and sport and other places. The dockers need a Messiah. They need someone to bring them back out of the wilderness at the bottom half of the drawer, and if AFL was playing, get them to the top. The Labor Party, after the last election, decided they needed a different Messiah. Maybe Albo can do it. A Messiah is somebody who leads his people to victory and glory. And in the Bible, the Messiah was always a king who leads people to victory by conquering. He's triumphant and vanquishes all opposition. But crucified is the opposite. Crucified is execution as a criminal. Conquered, vanquished, shamed. And so crucified Christ is an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? You're educated. A contradiction in terms, like fun run, or personal computer, or monosyllabic. Or one of my favourites, it isn't used anymore by Microsoft because they realised it, I think. There was a program that used to be called Microsoft Works. An oxymoron, Christ crucified. Crucified refers to an event, that first Easter, the first Good Friday. Jesus was God's Messiah, the Son of God sent by his Father to save us, to rescue us from the just condemnation we deserve, I deserve, for my evil behaviour. How? By being condemned to death in my place, in your place. Jesus' death wasn't merely a martyr's death, although it was a complete travesty of justice. Jesus' death was not simply a demonstration of love, although it did demonstrate enormous love. At its heart, Jesus' death was a substitution. He voluntarily took my place. In the story of Jesus' death, there's actually a wonderful illustration. There was a guy called Barabbas, who was guilty of murder and insurrection, had been condemned to crucifixion. He was in death row while Jesus was going, uh, undergoing his trial. Jesus was found not guilty by the governor Pilate. He deserves to be released. He's the only perfectly innocent man who's ever lived on this planet. And Pilate offers the crowd, I'll set one free, Barabbas or Jesus? The crowd chooses Barabbas. And so Jesus the innocent goes to his death while Barabbas the guilty walks free. A trade, one life for another. Jesus for Barabbas, Jesus for you and for me. In an act of selfless love, Jesus humbled himself to save us from our foolish pride. And that message is at the heart of what Paul preaches. But he knows that as a marketing strategy, it is the pits. What interest would clever, sophisticated, educated people like you have in an obscure event, uh, obscure event in ancient history, especially when it centres on a shameful crucifixion? He acknowledges that those into power and miracles, it really just doesn't cut it. He says, uh, uh, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
See, if you're into the supernatural power, you're not interested in somebody who's, getting, who's crucified. Surely, if he's powerful, he'd come down from the cross. He'd save himself. A crucified Messiah is not very exciting or impressive. Some of you may have heard of Richard Dawkins, a formerly Oxford professor in biology, a great critic of religion of all sorts. He wrote a very popular book called The God Delusion. He was interviewed by Time magazine a few years ago. He said, a supernatural intelligent designer, that seems to me to be a worthy idea. Refutable, he's an atheist, but nevertheless grand and big enough to be worthy of respect. But I don't see Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. It strikes me as parochial. So for Dawkins, Christ crucified, it's not worth his attention. It's beneath his dignity, a stumbling block. And for those into cleverness and wisdom, Paul says it's foolishness. Jesus can't have been too clever to get himself crucified, especially if he's innocent. He could have at least got a decent lawyer. What was he thinking defending himself and even then hardly doing any defence? But the philosophers and the intelligentsia, most aren't interested in the cross of Jesus. Much more interested in the latest speculations about big bangs and multiverses. One of the most famous philosophers and influential of the late 20th century was a man called Anthony Flew, at least in Western philosophy. He was an avowed atheist pretty much all of his life, but as an older man, he changed his mind. He said the evidence convinced him that this universe must be the product of an intelligent mind. He came out as a theist, a believer in a God. But in all that he's ever said since then, he's shown no interest whatsoever in Jesus, in being rescued by Jesus. Go to the philosophy department at this university or the uni I studied at, Uni of New South Wales, and I remember endless discussions about the existence of God. And the, the lecturers loved, and the students too, loved showing how clever they are by poking holes into the arguments for God's existence. The teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the ontological argument. And then they pat themselves on their back and say they've figured out God and continue to pride themselves in how clever they are. But the cross of Christ never figured in those discussions, at least in my experience. It's dismissed as foolishness. Like it was in the first century, uh, in the late 1980s, a piece of graffiti was discovered in the catacombs of Rome scratched into the plaster of a wall and it depicts a man down on his knees prostrate worshipping and in front of him the thing he's worshipping is a human figure nailed up on a cross crucified but it's got a donkey's head and the inscription says Alexamenos worships his god it's a cartoon see for the first century to have a god who was crucified is like worshipping a donkey it just doesn't make sense. It's foolish. But Paul reckons that Christ crucified is where you encounter and experience the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, the so-called foolishness, the cross, is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God, the cross, is stronger than human strength. It may be scoffed at as weak and ridiculed as foolish, but in fact it's far more powerful than the most powerful human capacity. 
and far wiser than the cleverest things humans have ever done. Christ, the power of God. See, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has the power to save people, not just from COVID-19 or stock market crashes, but from death and hell. When Christ was crucified, he paid the penalty for our rebellion and pride. He won forgiveness and reconciliation. He secured a place in the new creation. He, in fact, won eternal life for mortal people like you and me. Do you know anything that comes close to being as powerful as that? An education, even if you've got a degree and a master's and a PhD and you've got a tenured professorship at one of the sandstone universities, has that got that power? A nuclear bomb, probably the most powerful thing humans have created so far. It's very powerful, but it can only destroy, it can't save. If you discovered a cure for COVID-19, I'd be so thankful to you, so grateful. But it can't save people for eternity. Christ's death is enormously powerful. It takes people from condemned to accepted, from guilty to clean, from bondage to freedom, from hell to heaven. It reverses a person's eternal destiny. It may seem weak and anemic, but it packs a punch. Christ, the power of God. And Christ, the wisdom of God. Again, it looks foolish, Christ crucified, but actually brilliantly wise. Let me just mention a couple of ways in which it's wise. The first is, it brings about the right shape to our relationship with God. What shape should creature to creator relationship have? Presumably something like a willing and grateful dependence, because we are dependent. He gave us our life and our world to enjoy. And the cross brings about a willing and grateful dependence. God does what I can't do for myself. He rescues me from the stupidity of my own actions, my own pride. And if I embrace that, it's deeply humbling, which is exactly what I need when I've been so proud. It brings me into a good, a happy dependence on God. I am dependent on it anyway. Now I live in that dependence. It's no longer me calling the shots. Come on, God, do a miracle for me. Prove yourself. But God restoring me into a good relationship in which he's at the centre, not me. Secondly, it's wise because it gives us value without pride. What makes you a somebody instead of just a nobody? My guess is that you spend at least 90% of your energy day by day trying to prove that you're a somebody. Maybe back in high school or before that, you worked out that you were really clever or you're good at sport, or you could build a body that impressed people, or you had a sense of humour that made people laugh, and so that's what you use, that's what you work on. You try to make yourself somebody of value through something that you can do. And it usually doesn't work. When I was in high school, it wasn't hard to be one of the clever people. It wasn't hard to come out on top and be ducks of the school, because I was a big fish in a small pond. I got to university. Suddenly I was a very small fish in a very big pond. There were far cleverer than pe- people than me around, which was incredibly deflating. It left me with a sense of insecurity about who I was and my value. Usually it doesn't work. For some people it does because they do come out on top. And where does that lead? To pride. Looking down on others from the heights of my achievements. Either way, fail or succeed. It leads to ugly competitiveness 
as we scramble over each other to feel valuable. Jesus' death cuts through that. It humbles us. I didn't achieve. I can never be arrogant. I can never look down on others. But it does give me enormous value and dignity. Christ died for me. He loved me enough. He valued me enough to die for me. Enormous value without pride. There's some depths to explore and experience in that. Christ crucified. That's what Christians love to celebrate on Good Friday and every other day of the year as well. It is God's amazingly powerful and brilliantly wise way that he saves people. And it fits us like a glove. It puts everything back into the shape, the way it ought to be. At the beginning, we asked the question, why does God do such a lousy job at proving himself, at promoting himself? And we made two points. God refuses to pander to our demands that he do it our way, my way. Not that he can't, but that would just leave us in the mess of our pride. On the other hand, God's agenda is not to get us to believe in him, but to save us through the death of Jesus. To do that, he needs to subvert our pride. And so the question for us, for you and for me, is how do you fit with what Jesus did on that first Good Friday? Because the cross of Christ implies that a revolution is needed. It's easy, I think, for many of us to use God's failure to prove himself as a sort of convenient excuse. God, you haven't done it. If you really wanted me to believe, you'd prove yourself some unmistakable miracle, but you haven't. So until, until you do, I can just carry on as I am, living my life for me. If that's you, I urge you to stop and reconsider. That revolution really is needed, isn't it? Stop demanding God do it just for you. Look seriously and humbly. In the place the Bible says you will find God, in the death of Jesus and his resurrection to real life a couple of days later. I invite you to spend time over Easter exploring Jesus. If you've got Christian friends, maybe ask them. You can read over Zoom uh, some of those accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe for some, you're further than the stage of just needing to explore. You're ready to change, to humbly trust Jesus and his death for you and start a new life, forgiven, reconciled in friendship with the living God. If you're not quite sure what to do, again, just chat to a Christian friend you know. I'm sure they'd love to help you. And maybe for you, Jesus' death is already your joy and hope. And this Easter will be a wonderful time for you and for me. Despite the social isolation, we can't be isolated from God because Jesus has brought us close. So Easter becomes a time to rejoice and a time to explore more of the power and the wisdom of God. One of the biggest temptations for Christians, I think, is to get bored with the cross of Jesus, to start to think of it as a bit weak and, and foolish, and start straying towards other things that look wiser and more powerful, flashy and attractive, but actually aren't. No, better to explore the wisdom of the cross there are depths there to plumb that will take you your whole life and more. No, better to experience more of the power of the cross, because that will never deflate. That's what we can do this Easter. I hope and pray you're able to do that.